Hello, I'm Andrew Litton, Music Director of New York City Ballet, and welcome to another See the Music podcast. Today's topic, Ravel's amazing piano concerto in G major, his last work, and in fact, that's the name of the ballet, in G major. A little bit of a background, if I may digress from the facts at hand here and tell you a little funny story about myself. When I was a student at Juilliard in the early 80s, I had a girlfriend who was a member of the corps de ballet of this wonderful company. And of course, I was infatuated and wanted to see her dance as much as possible. And back then, there was an usher who I befriended who let me sneak in virtually every night, which was fantastic. This was, of course, way before uh, security and, and uh, that kind of thing. But one night while I was attending the performance, I heard for the very first time, which is incredible considering I was training to be a pianist at that point, the Ravel Piano Concerto in G. Now, how could that be? Well, I was really into the big, loud, romantic stuff at that age. I was learning Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky and Brahms. And even though I played some solo piano music by Ravel, I'd never, ever heard the piano concerto. So you can imagine the impact when this amazing Jerome Robbins ballet opened up before my eyes. And the thing that absolutely stands in my memory as the most vivid, the sort of epiphany, if you will, was the slow movement, which is very much the epicenter of this concerto. But the way Robbins choreographs it with the ballerina taking two steps forward and one step back, which worked so well with the music, I was in tears and I, it transformed me. So I ran and learned this piece immediately and I, I even have the date on the music, March 1982. Since then, I've conducted about 50 performances of it and 28 of which as piano soloist as well, because this is a wonderful piece to play and conduct, but this is not something that's wise at a ballet because of course you can't really be following the dancers while you're buried in the piano. So uh, we are very lucky this in this run to have one of our incredible staff pianists, Susan Walters, to do the duties. But for now, I'm seated at the piano and will attempt to play some passages a little bit later in illustration. Maurice Ravel was born in 1875 and we very much class him as an impressionist composer, along with his 12-year-older colleague, Claude Debussy. However, both composers really resented that label, but nevertheless, it has stuck. And if you want to do a visual art analogy, if Debussy is Monet, Ravel is more Manet or Degas. Ravel was born 11 miles north of the Spanish border in France, the Basque region. The Spanish influence was huge, starting with most of his compositions. They all have some sort of trace of Spanish influence. His most famous one, of course, being Bolero. And Bolero is probably his greatest hit. And Ravel actually really hated that. He, he, he said to his friend Arthur Honegger, I've written only one masterpiece, Bolero. Unfortunately, there is no music in it. Now, Ravel was born of a French mother and a Swiss father. And the Swiss connection is very relevant. Uh, Stravinsky, his friend, wrote, Ravel writes with a kind of Swiss watch perfection. Now the irony is I think Ravel actually wrote with the speed of a Swiss watch maker. He was notoriously slow. And in fact, this piano concerto took him two years to write and it lasts only a little bit more than 20 minutes. He actually only completed 85 works during his life and most 
of them are piano works as well, so they don't really count. So there's really fewer than 85 works. What he would do is write a piano piece and like it so much, he'd orchestrate it. So to me, that's the same piece, but never mind. Anyway, to put that in context, Debussy, in his much shorter life, wrote 182 pieces, and Saint-Saëns wrote 169. So Ravel was not a speed demon, but this actually goes historically throughout music. There are some composers who the ideas just pour out of them. One funny example, which is maybe hypocritical, but nevertheless a great story, is the Italian opera composer Giochino Rossini was notoriously lazy and he was in bed and he wrote this fantastic trio for one of his operas and a gust of wind took it and blew it under the bed and he was too lazy to get up and get it, so he wrote another one. And that's the kind of ease that some composers have with writing music. And Ravel didn't have that. That doesn't necessarily mean anything with the ultimate quality. And of course, uh, Ravel actually only wrote four works for the concert hall. The Rhapsody Espanol, note the Spanish influence, La Valse, which we do here at New York City Ballet, and the two piano concertos. His piano writing is notoriously difficult, especially Gaspar de la Nuit, which is from 1908. But he was actually perhaps most famous for his expert orchestration. He, as I mentioned, would very often take his piano pieces and turn them into absolutely brilliant show pieces for orchestra. And he also orchestrated other works, most famously Mussorgsky's Pictures at an Exhibition, which if you hear in a concert hall and it's being played by an orchestra, 95% of the time it's in Ravel's orchestration. In 1928, Ravel went on a big U.S. tour. It lasted months, during which time he really fell under the thrall of America. He was, as R.B. Orenstein, the musicologist, wrote, Ravel was fascinated by the dynamism of American life, its huge cities, skyscrapers, and its advanced technology, and was impressed by its jazz and the excellence of American orchestras. He honestly was less impressed with the cuisine. Anyway, on this tour, he hooked up again with his friend, George Gershwin. And um, of course, George Gershwin is one of my, my greatest heroes. And the story has it that Gershwin at one point had gone to Ravel and said, can I please study with you? And Ravel said, why be a second-rate Ravel when you're already a first-rate Gershwin? Now, even though that might seem like a put-down, it wasn't. Ravel was completely mesmerized by Gershwin's ability to write melodies just instantly, and also the jazz side of things. And even though 1928 wasn't the first time they met, Gershwin had previously been to France, it was pivotal because I do believe that Ravel maybe had a look at Gershwin's American in Paris and offered some suggestions. That's just conjecture. I do not know for sure. But... This influence of jazz is undeniable, as I will demonstrate in just a minute in this concerto. The concerto, as I mentioned, was written between 1930 and 1932, and it begins with an extremely unusual instrument called the whip, or in Italian, if you want to impress somebody at your next dinner party, frusta. So that's a very unique way to start a piece, but the fact is the whip was used uh, very effectively um, in compositions throughout the 20th century, maybe the most famous usage is in the opera Billy Budd by Benjamin Britten, where, of course, it's depicting an actual whip being used on unfortunate sailors. But to start a piece with that, it's such a funny sound, and it immediately puts us with a smile on our face. 
The first thing you hear is a melody that's played in the piccolo, and it sounds like this. Now, accompanying this jaunty piccolo is the pianist doing this. Sounds pretty dissonant, right? But it's actually not. It's called bitonality. It's two distinctly tonal chords just played at the same time. So the right hand has G major, and the left hand has some strange diminished chord. And together, So we're immediately smiling. You've got the whip, you've got the piccolo playing the first tune, and the piano in some crazy harmonic world. Now, bitonality had been alive and well for years. As a matter of fact, Stravinsky was the king of bitonality, most exceptionally in his Rite of Spring, where he has the same chord pattern going for minutes and minutes. And that is, again, two chords, E major and E flat 7. Alone, they sound perfectly normal. Put them together, and they do not. And Stravinsky, just in defiance, actually plays that chord for 276 beats. Now, Ravel doesn't take quite that long. As a matter of fact, this piece is just like so many of his works, a very wonderful sort of miniature. Everything is small scale, even the orchestration. It's, it's almost chamber-like in size. There's only one trumpet, one trombone. So um, it's just a delight. Now, the piano eventually comes in after the orchestra takes over the tune with the first theme for the piano, which is this. Listen to that. Remember his Spanish influence? To me, that sounds totally Spanish. Let me play it again. So then the piano continues and gives us the second theme, which is kind of jazzy. comes a bridge passage that has nothing to do with the themes we've heard so far, but just connects two sections. And it's quintessential Ravel. Now, during these uh, 10 bars or so, he does not give us any dynamic indication. He doesn't give the performer any guidance. So if you play it the way it looks on paper,
but that's ridiculous. And so I, my view of this passage is as follows. And so there is an example of interpretation, really. When somebody talks about so-and-so's interpretation, it's literally taking black dots on a page, like we get to look at as musicians, and turning them into something that you believe in, that you believe the composer was trying to say. So soon after all this ruminative music, we start having the fast boppy stuff, which just really gets us in a dan dancing mood. Now, all those repeated notes remind us of a work by George Gershwin from many years earlier. So Ravel is really almost stealing the idea of this repeated note that Gershwin himself made so famous. The pianist gets to have a cadenza, or a solo passage, near the end of the first movement. And it's fascinating because what Ravel was actually doing between 1930 and 1932 was not only writing this G major piano concerto, but he's also writing a concerto for left hand. So his last works were both piano concertos. The left hand concerto was for a pianist named Paul Wittgenstein who lost his right arm in the First World War. So this cadenza, in the two-hand concerto, is almost like a study for the left-hand concerto because the left hand does all the work. After the right hand, which is just sort of trilling uh, anonymously, the right hand trills suddenly become the focus of our attention. And this, I believe, and I don't have proof, but I do believe this was Ravel's unwritten tribute to a very legendary and famous musical saw performer that lived in the first part of the 20th century. Musical saw was quite in vogue then, and in fact, Many people don't realize this, but Marlene Dietrich was apparently a virtuoso musical saw player. Unfortunately, with all the existing footage of her, we don't have any of her playing the saw. It would be wonderful if it ever shows up on YouTube. I'm all over it. But in any case, the saw, of course, is an instrument that almost uh, foretells the, the sound of the theremin. You get distinct pitches, but you, there's sort of a schmear between them. They're not clean pitches like you can on a piano. So he does this effect with trills. Wild effect. I mean, of course, it doesn't sound exactly like a musical saw, but it's at least, I think, uh, very much trying to as best you can on a piano. So the first movement ends in a riotous, joyous romp, very much in G major, as the concerto, of course, is. Second movement I mentioned at the beginning of this broadcast, where 
it's just such an incredibly beautiful choreography that I fell in love with the music, thanks to the ballet. Um, and in this case, there's a very interesting effect here. Ravel writes a left hand like this. So it sounds almost like a waltz, but it's actually in 6-8. So it's one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four. Now against this, he puts a melody that's in three. One, two, three. One, two, three, one. And that's where Robbins gets his amazing inspiration. He has the dancers walking towards each other in the tempo of the left hand, and what they do with their upper body is very often in the tempo of the right hand. And so it's amazing. Now, 33 measures long is this opening melody, and it Ravel, as I mentioned earlier, who had a very hard time conceiving his works. He really, he struggled and struggled. He wrote of this actual opening of the second movement, that flowing phrase, it nearly killed me. Here it is.
such sublime music. There's such a simplicity to it, and yet there's a, such a sort of raging passion underneath the surface. When he has these quiet moments, they're the most telling to me, like this. It's just achingly beautiful to me. Anyway, that's the second movement, and eventually, at the end, the English horn gets to play what the right hand just played, and the pianist gets to do a very ornate version, a sort of accompanying version that's absolutely beautiful. So. and so on and so forth. But did you notice the left hand is exactly the same as the beginning? Great device. Now the third movement is just a joyous musical romp from start to finish. The piano enters with guns blazing in the fifth measure after the orchestra gives it a great setup. pianist has the second theme to itself to start with. And then starts a passage of repeated notes. Remembering our homage to George Gershwin, there it is. And there's so much fun writing and for example, listen to this passage of the pianist just having a ball. Okay, and here's another example of fun. It's just such joy to play this music and hopefully to listen to it as well. And then there's even a passage that's sort of like stride piano. The left hand. You got that in the left hand? So talking about jazz, there's even another example. So the piece is just a joy and ends with everybody screaming out the opening chords of the last movement. Such a fun piece, and it gives no hint to what was about to happen to Ravel, whose rapid deterioration. We're not sure whether it was Alzheimer's or some other sort of degenerative disease, but Stravinsky wrote, his final years were cruel, for he was gradually losing his memory and some of his coordinating powers, and he was, of course, quite aware of it. So a very tragic ending to our composer, featured composer today, but he did leave us some of the most glorious music ever written, and it's a privilege to play it and to listen to it. Thank you so much for joining me. This is Andrew Litton, Music Director of New York City Ballet, and you've been listening to See the Music. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date on new episode releases. 
all of us here at New York City Ballet. Hope to see you soon in the theater. So head over to NewYorkCityBallet.com and have a look at what's on our stage. <laughs>